This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Good morning. I'm unexpectedly anxious. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Words of Integration and Guidance by Harvey Cox. Faith begins with awe in the face of mystery. But awe becomes faith only when it takes the next step. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once remarked that as soon as we are old enough to look around, we find ourselves on a ship that has already been launched. As we become aware of the mysteries of world, self, and other, they always arrive suffused with the specific languages, emotions, and thought patterns of a particular cultural tradition. And these supply the theories, myths, and metaphors with which we respond. The ship I found myself on, the narrative through which I came to awareness of the different facets of the mystery, is the Judeo-Christian one. Of course, this is largely a matter of the circumstances of my birth and upbringing. Had I been born in Bombay or Baghdad or Beijing, I would have found myself on a different ship and would undoubtedly have absorbed different customs and narratives. Not only are we traveling on different vessels, the tradition that first formed our consciousness gets under our skin. Even if we reject it, we reject it within its own brains of reference. A Christian atheist is different from a Buddhist atheist in part because they are each rejecting radically different concepts of the divine. This is important to remember that there is no neutral platform on which to stand. A reading of scripture from Genesis 11, 27 through 32. Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahar and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahar took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahar's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, 
and Tira died in Haran. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. <laughs> Genesis 12, the first four verses, and this is as translated by Hebrew Bible scholar Everett Fox. The Lord said to Avram, or Abram, Go you forth from your land, from your kindred, from your father's house, to the land I will let you see. I will make a great nation of you and will give you blessing and will make your name great. Be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will damn. All the clans of the soil will find blessing through you. Abram went as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was five years and seventy years old when he went out of Haran. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Well, the story is told of the man who came to the master in sannyasi robes, or the modest clothes of a wandering Hindu ascetic. And he spoke the sacred language, saying, For years I've been seeking God. I've searched everywhere that God is said to be, on mountain peaks, the vastness of the desert, the silence of the cloister, and the dwellings of the poor. Well, have you found God? asked the master. No, I have not, said the man, shoulders slumping. Have you? What could the master say? The evening sun was sending shafts of golden light into the room. Hundreds of sparrows were twittering on a nearby banyan tree. In the distance, one could hear the sound of highway traffic. A mosquito droned a warning that it was about to strike. Endless wonders happening in that single moment, and yet this man could sit here and say he had not found God. After a while, he left, disappointed, to search elsewhere. Faith is a tricky thing, isn't it? I think I found myself in both places in that story. Searching for God everywhere and not finding what I'm looking for. And then finding God in everything. As we heard earlier, Harvey Cox put it this way. Faith begins with awe in the face of mystery. Now, throughout the Bible, Abraham is called a man of faith, or even the father of faith. And so perhaps he's a fitting guide as we explore this concept. And as we think about faith, we have to remember that today we tend to define faith as an intellectual assent to a creed or a set of beliefs. But the biblical writers didn't view faith in this way. When they praise the faith of Abraham, they're not commending his orthodoxy, or his acceptance of a correct 
set of theological opinions about God. Instead, they're talking about his trust, his willingness to respond to a call from the divine to walk to an unknown place. Awe in the face of mystery. And I like the analogy that Kierkegaard gave that we heard, that as soon as we're old enough to look around, we find ourselves on a ship that's already been launched. And what he means is that most of us didn't choose the faith tradition in which we were raised. Many of us were simply born into it, so to speak. And as a child, you take at face value much of what you're taught about God and, and faith and so on. And by the time you have the awareness to ask deeper questions and probe the mysteries, so to speak, you already have a framework from, with, from within which to ask those questions, a platform on which to stand. Which makes it interesting to think about Abraham. He's often credited as being the founder of monotheism. And he's the patriarch of the three major monotheistic religions of the world, right? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all find their roots and beginnings in Abraham. Though, of course, those specific religious traditions would all develop much after his time. Monotheism is the simple idea that there is one God. And so it may be more accurate to say Abraham was a henotheist, which is the idea that although there are many gods, I am choosing to follow one particular God. True monotheism wouldn't come into existence until later. It was simply accepted in ancient times that there were many gods. And certain stories and legends grew up around Abraham because we're not given a lot of detail about his life in the Bible, especially his first part of his life. We don't meet him until he's already 75. So certainly a lot has already happened. And according to one Jewish legend, even as a boy, Abraham was able to divine from the stars, no pun intended, that there was only one God. And since the stars came out at night and disappeared during the day, the boy Abram uh, reasoned, they couldn't have created the world as tradition held. Instead, he thought there must be an invisible single God above them. And this view put Abraham at odds with his father, who legend held his dad for a living, made idols and sold them. So he had a probably a wood shop or something of the sort where he crafted stone or wood little idols. And rumor also has it that as a boy, Abram in his zeal for monotheism went in there and smashed all of his dad's idols. So we can see why maybe he left his family behind. Maybe that was a secondarily good, good reason. Now in her book, A History of God, religious historian Karen Armstrong reminds us that the human idea of God has a history. The human idea of God has a history since it has always meant something slightly different to different groups of people over time and across the globe. She says, consequently, there is no one changing idea contained in the word God. It said the word contains a whole spectrum of meanings which change and evolved over time in various traditions and settings. And hearing that can feel threatening. Many, if not most of us, were raised in a monotheistic 
uh, setting and we didn't have to think about that, uh, this idea would have been very threatening to me. There was no questions about any of this, that there were different ideas about God. God simply was and is. And a helpful way maybe to think about it is that God hasn't changed over time so much as human ideas, as people have encountered the divine, have come up with different words and ways to explore and explain that awe in the face of mystery. <clears throat> now, Karen Armstrong says that a fundamentalist would deny that the idea of God has changed over time since fundamentalism is anti-historical. It would imagine that Abraham, Moses, and the people in the Bible all experienced God in exactly the same way as we do today. But a little deeper reading shows that that seems not to be the case, as the idea of God even seems to change within the pages of Scripture itself, even in the first two books of the Bible. Again, Karen Armstrong, respected religious historian, says it's highly likely that Abraham's God was El, the high God of Canaan. The deity introduces himself to, and she uses the male pronouns, she says, as that's what the tradition used, acknowledging, of course, that God is beyond any single uh, classification, gender, or pronoun. She says the deity introduces himself to Abraham as El Shaddai, or El of the Mountain, and did not do that through a naming grandson, actually. <laughs> historical note. But that was simply one of El's traditional titles, El Shaddai. Elsewhere, he's called El Elyon, the Most High God, or El of Bethel, which is a little redundant, as Bethel simply means House of God. And this name of the Canaanite High God is preserved in such Hebrew names as Israel. Or Ishmael. And El seemed to be on intimate terms with Abraham, guiding his wanderings, as we hear in our story, telling his children who to marry, speaking to them in dreams, even arriving to Abraham in seemingly human form. If you remember the story by the oak trees of Mamre, where he has three visitors, one of them seems to be God, him, or herself. And Abraham serves refreshments to the three. But by the time the story gets to Moses in the book of Exodus, we see uh, some shifting taking place and God showing up with the name Yahweh. And this is interesting in that in all of his early appearances to Moses in Exodus, Yahweh insists repeatedly and at some length that he is indeed the God of Abraham. And this insistence, says Armstrong, may preserve distant echoes of a very early debate about who this God of, Abraham, of Moses was. And at the burning bush, God says to Moses, Come no closer. Take off your shoes, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at that, the text says, Moses covered his face, afraid to look at God. And so Armstrong says, Despite the assertions that Yahweh is indeed the God of Abraham, this seems to be at least a very different aspect of the deity who had sat and shared a meal with Abraham as his friend. Here is one who inspires fear and insists upon distance. And so the idea of God evolves over time, even within a single scriptural tradition. And so if the idea of God can change even in the Bible itself, or grows, evolves, and so on, it's okay if we experience something like that in our journey as well.
And so here we have Abram, Abraham called by a God he doesn't really know to go to a place he's never been. Has your spiritual journey ever felt like that? You thought you understood God, but then a crack appears in your former certainty. And now you're not quite sure what it is that you believe or where to go next in your spiritual journey. Bruce Feiler, the author of the excellent book Walking the Bible, says, in telling the story of Abraham, the Bible is interested in much more than history. It takes elements of history, mixes them with elements of myth, and begins to mold them together into a theme. Abraham is not simply a settled man or a wandering man, he's both. He's a combination who embodies in his upbringing a message he will come to represent the perpetual stranger in a strange land, the outsider who longs to be the insider. And the fact, he says, that Abraham is such a shadowy figure actually makes this point even more compelling. And when he says shadowy figure, he means we don't have a lot of history in the text itself about Abraham, details about his life, as well as archaeologically, because it was so long ago, there's no you know, discoveries that say, oh, here walked Abraham. And so we must accept his story on faith rather than on science. We must see him not as something we can prove, but as something we must believe. And of course, so it is with God. And as we think about this setting for Abraham, he appears and begins the 20th generation of humanity, according to the Bible. And each one has fallen short, whether Adam or Noah or the folks building the tower in Babel. And so God appears ready to start again with humanity. But is Abraham the ideal candidate? He's childless, as we heard read, at a time when the whole point, it seems, of, of human existence, or at least the key point, was to create the next generation. He's aging. He's stuck in Haran. And he's lived nearly half of his life before anything happens to him. He's 75 years old. Before anything of significance begins. Before this journey begins. And as someone who's lived at least half their life, I find this hopeful. That there still are journeys to take. Still are discoveries to be made. Still a divine call on my life and on yours. No matter our age or where we are in our journey of discovery. And notice, again, what the purpose of that call is for Abraham. To be a blessing. To be a blessing. I will make a great nation of you. I will give you blessing and make your name great. Be a blessing. All the clans of the soil will be blessed through you. I find this so hopeful. That I don't have to have it all figured out when it comes to my faith or even God. I don't even have to know where my journey is going to take me next, but I can still hold to this sacred purpose to be a blessing. The black contemplative theologian Howard Thurman writes about the practice of a desert dweller one who lived in a place not unlike the sands that Abraham traversed. He says, for many years it was the custom of this desert dweller to leave 
a lighted lantern by the roadside at night to cheer the weary traveler. And beside the lantern, there would be a note giving details for the ways to find uh, the cottage of this desert dweller so that if there was any distress or need on the journey for this traveler, they could find their way and find help. A simple gesture full of beauty and wholeness. And to him, it wasn't important how many people would pass the night and go on their way. The important thing was that the lantern burns every night, and every night the note is there, just in case. He then says, years, years ago, I was walking along a road outside Rangoon, Burma, or what is now called Yangon, Myanmar. And he says, I noted at intervals along the way a roadside stone upon which sat a crock of water, and sometimes there would also be fruit. And he noticed this several points along his journey. Water and fruit would often be placed by Buddhist priests to bless and comfort any passers-by. He says, the fact that I was a traveler from another part of the world, speaking a language and practicing a different faith, made no difference. What mattered was the fact that I was walking along the road. What my mission was, who I was, was all irrelevant. I love that, a willingness to bless all who pass our way. All who pass our way. But the truth is, our world tends to see religion as increasingly negative, if we're honest. And the three major monotheistic religions stemming from Abraham, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have generally not played nice together. Let's put it mildly, right? But does it have to be that way? Does it have to be that way? I've experienced friendships, good friendships, with people who are Jewish, who are Muslim, who belong to a number of the world's different faiths. Some of the most kind and selfless people that I've ever met. And Brian McLaren invites us to imagine these different religious traditions coming together to work for the common good. He says, imagine the Pope and the Dalai Lama, an evangelical pastor and a Muslim imam, that one's tougher to picture, a leading rabbi and an Orthodox patriot, patriarch, all of these side by side serving meals in a refugee camp, distributing mosquito nets and digging wells for a poor village. And he says, now imagine if they met regularly to dream and pray together and work for the well-being of all. Imagine if they led their various religious communities to sign treaties or agreements of non-aggression and mutual protection. And then he says, keep imagining, imagining it. Imagine if organized religion organized billions of people and trillions of dollars to address the challenges that our economic and political systems seem, seem afraid or unwilling to tackle. Imagine if they were willing to address a planet ravaged by unsustainable human behavior and out-of-control consumptive economy, the growing gap between rich and poor and the proliferation of weapons of all kinds. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And he says, when I share this idea with folks and propose these possibilities, people frequently say, wow, if they did that, I might become religious again. But then they often also respond, but I won't hold my breath. 
But isn't that the invitation, an example of Abraham? The lesson of Abraham's early life is that being human does not necessarily mean being safe or comfortable. Being human is uncertain. Being on the way to an unknown place. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't need to have all the answers. We simply need to hear the ancient call. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Maybe so. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.